good to see you here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, or you didn't see a rather uncomfortable interview on EU TV uh, over the last couple of days, uh, my name is Rowan Kemp. I lead the staff team that serves alongside the EU here at Sydney University. And this is, I, I think I worked it out, this is something like the 89th year that EU has had public meetings here at Sydney University. It's been going on for a very long time, EU public meetings. I haven't been here the whole time, um, <laughs> but I have been here for a little while. Um, and one of the things that you'll see that we do at every single EU public meeting is what just happened. That is, we prayerfully open God's Word, the Christian Bible, and read it together. And that happens every single time. Why are we so committed to reading the Bible together and trying to understand it together? Well, to answer that question, we've got to take a bit of a step back. Two big questions for you to think about that I, th I think actually every single person in the world has to think about. They come under the broad topics of theology and spirituality. Theology, who or what is divine? Who are the gods? Or is there a god? Or is there any god? The question of theology, is there a god, some sort of divine? But then there's the question of spirituality, which is how do we relate to the gods, the god, the divine? Theology and spirituality. We need to always, or every single one of us, needs to come up with some sort of answer to those questions, the two big questions of theology and spirituality. Now, in terms of the Christian worldview, the answer to those questions are fairly clear. In the Christian worldview, there is only one true living God. And that's the God who has revealed himself ultimately in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ. There is only one true living God, the one who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we access that information about Jesus Christ? We do that through the Christian Bible, through this particular book. So that's why at EU public meetings, in order to understand who God is, you will find us reading the Christian scriptures every single week. Because we believe that through this particular record, the one true living God reveals himself to us. That's why over these uh, first couple of weeks, as we look, the first four weeks as we look at the book of Isaiah, I've called this sort of just four weeks, God Uncovered. God Uncovered. Why have I called it that? Well, because as we look at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, who we meet here is the one true living God as he reveals himself to us. So we're going to be looking at the first well, first 27 chapters or so of the book of Isaiah. Um, just obviously we can't talk about every single part in that. I'm your rather impoverished travel guide to understanding the book of Isaiah. I'm hoping that in the sort of 25 to 30 minutes I get to speak with you, I can give you enough of a handle on these sections of the book of Isaiah so that you could actually go away and read it and understand it for yourself. That's my goal. But as we think about the book of Isaiah, today we're particularly thinking about God unexpected. You know what this mountain is? Anyone know, recognise this mountain? It's not hard, it's Mount Everest, right? Anyone actually been to Nepal? Seen Mount Everest? Anyone been to base camp? No. Uh, do you know any other mountains in the Himalayas? Yeah? K2. Anyone know anything else? Yeah? 
Okay, one other. So we've got three mountains so far. Anyone else know any other mountains in the Himalayas? Lutsi? Four? Hmm. How many mountains do you think there are in the Himalayas? It's quite a lot. Um, the Himalayas... <laughs> no, four was not the right answer. But good, good try. Um, the Himalayas go from over here in Pakistan all the way through across the border here in Nepal and China, all the way across... is a massive, massive mountain range. Huge! Most of us only know a few mountains in this whole mountain range and have never been there. You just know them by reputation. I suspect the book of Isaiah is a little bit like that for most people who are Christians. The book of Isaiah is a very big book. There are lots of words written here in this book. It takes you a little while to read from the beginning to the end. However, if you've been around in Christian circles for a while, you're probably familiar with some passages in the book of Isaiah. Call out any chapter of Isaiah that you've heard referenced before. 52, 53, 9, 40. Someone want to say Isaiah 6? Someone say Isaiah 6. Yes, thank you, good, Isaiah 6. We're looking at that one next week. There's a bunch of passages with which... If you're a Christian person, you're reasonably familiar, or at least it's sort of like you're in a plane, basically, drive, flying along, and every now and then, whoof, you land in, and you just land straight at base camp, and you go, whoa, Everest, awesome. You're back in the plane, and you take off again, and that's it. That's it, you've done the Himalayas now, because you went to Isaiah 53 once, and you know, whoo, that's, that's just awesome. Isaiah, I want to suggest to you, I, the book of Isaiah in the Christian Old Testament is this magnificent, glorious mountain range. And no matter what I share with you about it, it will not be the same as you going there. I want to encourage you this year, as the EU has picked Isaiah as its sort of book of the year, which means about half of all the public meetings will be on the book of Isaiah, I want to encourage you to actually go there, actually read the book of Isaiah this year. Read it, reflect on it, because it is glorious. And if you're a Christian person, it will help you better understand the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as you read this book of Isaiah. I'll try and be your little travel guide as we go along and try to understand different things. But, for example, for next week, it would be great if you could read Isaiah 1-5, to which is what I'm sort of giving you an orientation to today, and Isaiah 6, which we'll talk about next week. That might be just a great way to start to get acclimatised to this glorious mountain range, which many of us never go to. So that's a little bit just my encouragement to get into the book of Isaiah this year. Now, what is the setting for this book of Isaiah? It's in the Christian Old Testament. If you've got your Bible there, it'd be great if you can open it up or maybe look on with the person next to you, call it up on your phone, it would be really, really helpful if you could do that. I'm going to flick through a few different things as in these um, opening chapters as we think about the context of this book of Isaiah. If you've got your Bible there or there on your phone, you can see Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The whole book starts with this sentence. The vision, singular, this whole book is one big vision. Now, when you actually read through it, 
it's actually lots of visions put together, but it has been brought together into one, it is one conceptual unity. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city in this land, Judah. You might know a bit of the history of the nation of Old Testament Israel. It's split into two parts. The northern part, confusingly, was called Israel, and the southern part was called Judah. Here, this prophecy uh, given to Isaiah concerns Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital city. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of, and he lists off four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. As we'll see next week when we get to chapter 6, Isaiah started his ministry as a prophet in the nation of Judah in the very year that King Uzziah died. So he does overlap with King Uzziah, but only just. There's Uzziah, and then he dies in 740 BC, the historians tell us. And it seems that Isaiah's ministry went for 40 years, from 740 BC through to about 701 BC. 40 years of ministry as a prophet. And this book records his prophecies that he gave to the people in the, over that 40-year period. They've been brought together, though, and given a particular shape. And the very first chapter, Isaiah chapter 1, is a bit of an orientation to the whole of the book, where he puts forward the big themes that are going to recur right throughout the whole of the book. So if we look here at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, we can see that something terribly is wrong. Something terribly is wrong. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manager, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Something terrible is wrong. God's own people the people chosen by the one true living God, this Old Testament nation of Israel, they have rejected him. They have wandered away from the God who chose and saved them. See what he says in verse 4. A sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. This is the, this is the thing that is terribly wrong. God's own people have rejected him. What's the consequence of that? Have a look at the next couple of verses, verses 5 to 7. He outlines the conflict, the uh, dreadful result. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. The image is of his people as a result of their rebellion of him. They are beaten up. They're lying as a terribly wounded person who's been bashed and left lying and no one is bringing any comfort to them. That is the image of his people as a result of what's happened to them. He goes on with another image in verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities 
burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. If you jump forward later in the book, you'll see that during Isaiah's 40-year period, it was a very tumultuous period for that part of the world in the 8th century BC. One of the big power at the time was the nation of Assyria, and there was all sorts of political intrigue and international standoffs between Assyria and various other nations, other nations trying to bandy together against the superpower Assyria, Assyria coming in and smashing those nations back into submission. It's a very tumultuous period, which is going to come out in some of Isaiah's prophecies. But if you jump ahead a little bit later, you'll see at one particular point in about um, when the, sort of the, the, the mid-period of Isaiah's time, the Assyrian nation comes and attacks Judah and they take all the cities, all the land in Judah, right up to the capital city. It would be like someone invading Australia and taking all of Australia until they get to the ACT. And there's only the ACT left, the capital city. I mean, yeah, ACT doesn't seem terribly um, <laughs> hard to defend. But it was a bit different in Judah because Jerusalem was the most fortified. Right? Their capital city was the most fortified of all the, the places in the land. And so the Assyrians took the whole country and all that was left was just the capital city. That's the image here, right? Invaders have come in. They have, they have stripped the whole land right before you. All that's left is Jerusalem, called here in verse 8, the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion, Jerusalem is left. Left how? Like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah the infamous cities earlier in the Old Testament who were wiped out because of their disobedience. This is the picture in which Isaiah has been ministering. This is the situation that his visions, his prophecies address. This is giving you an orientation to what's going on in the book. It raises lots of questions, those first 10 verses. How did it end up like this? How did it develop? What, what is God going to do about this? What, did, what are the people going to do about this? Those are the, the questions that you should have in mind now as we sort of head into the rest of the book. Okay, so that's some context. Just setting up the book for you. I'm checking the time. My goal is to finish at about quarter two to leave about five minutes for questions so that we wrap up at 10-2 so you can get to wherever you need to get to. So don't stress, okay? So four things then about the one true living God that I think we learn from these first couple of chapters of Isaiah under the heading of God unexpected. The one true living God who reveals himself in this first couple of chapters of Isaiah is, I think, unexpected. He's not the God that you would expect in four ways. First of all, he displays unexpected hatred. The one true living God who reveals himself here displays unexpected hatred. Hatred. Have a look, if you've got Isaiah chapter 1 there, have a look at verses 10 to 14. The one true living God addresses his people who've wandered from his way, right? Who've rejected him. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? 
I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What is surprising here is the one true living God is complaining that his people are doing the religious things he told them to do. He said, make sacrifices, they're making sacrifices. He said, hold these festivals, they're holding the festivals. He said, pray to me, they're praying to him. He said, burn incense, they're burning incense. He's doing all the religious practice, they're doing all the religious practice that he told them to do and he says, I hate it. I hate it, I cannot stand it anymore. It is a weariness to me, I cannot bear this. It's an unexpected hatred from him. Why would he hate them doing the very things he's told them to do as his people? Well, what's the answer? Well, why? The answer is, as we've already saw back in verse 4, they have rejected him. God's people have turned their backs on him. They're still carrying out all this religious practice, but actually in their hearts, they've turned away from him. They're doing the religious stuff, but they're not actually living. They're not actually walking as he wants them to live and walk. That's the problem. You can see this there in, say, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. These were all things that he told them to do throughout the law in the Old Testament. But they were rejecting all of those things. They were carrying on with the religious practices, the rituals. But they weren't actually living as the people God had called them to be. So, how bad was it? Flick forward to chapter 5. Chapter 5, flick forward. Chapter 1 raises the issues and then chapters 2 to 5 sort of enlarge on the picture so you get it in a bit more detail. But jump in here, if you jump in chapter 5 verse 8, you can see six woes. Six sort of examples of things that God's people were doing. Verse 8, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That is, they were greedy. It was all about more, more, more. That's what was actually going on in the way they lived. Or jump down then to verse 11 to 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. They're living it up, party, party, party time, but they've got no respect for what God has done in their life, no respect for what his word is. Or verses 18 to 19, 
Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. The image is these, these people are coming again saying, hey, get a load of this. Yeah, I know we're not meant to do it, but it's awesome. Do this, do this, like have a go at this. I'll drag it along so you can have a go at it. It's all about doing the things actually that God had told them not to do. And so we can keep going through these woes and I'll let you trace it up. There's the morality twisters who say evil is good and what is good is actually evil. There's the ones in 521 who say they're haughty, they're proud. We really have it together. They're wise in their own eyes. There's those who in chapter 5 verses 21 and 22 are winning gold medals in the wrong things. They're champions, he says, at mixing drinks but they're not actually doing, living the way, treating people the way God wants them to treat. This is why things have gone wrong. This is why God hates their religious practices because actually the way they're living is so far from what he wants from them. This has um, always been the case for God with his people. He's always cared actually about the heart, not just about the outward external rituals or practices. Jesus said the same things. Uh, when Jesus spoke to the religious leaders, and you can let chase this up later in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus spoke to the religious leaders in chapter 23, he said, you are, you're tithing your, your herbs, you know, you're sacrificing a tenth of your herbs to God, but actually you're neglecting the more important things like justice, like mercy. Or in, uh, when he speaks in Matthew chapter 7, he says, there will be many people on that last day who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? But Jesus will say, I never knew you. There's all sorts of ways that actually God's people, even today, can be involved in doing lots of Christian stuff, doing lots of religious stuff, but actually your heart not be where God is. So I don't know your situation. It's the first week of lectures for a new year on campus. Maybe you're new to Sydney Uni. Maybe you're just checking out the Christian faith. Maybe you've been coming along for years. Either way, the question really is, which way have you turned? See, their problem was they turned away from the Lord. Yes, they were still doing all this stuff, but actually they turned away from the Lord. Maybe you go to church, maybe you're heavily involved in the EU, maybe you know lots of stuff about the Bible, maybe you're busy serving, you're on every roster at your local church you can possibly imagine, you're busy serving with kids ministry and youth ministry. or That's just stuff, right? That's just doing stuff. Does God actually say, I hate your roster filling? I hate the fact that you're busy doing kids' church, playing music. Why would he hate those things? Well, he would hate it if your heart is far from him, if you've actually turned your back on him, if the actual way you're living your life and walking is not in accordance with his word. This is the unexpected hatred from God. Now, there's much more I can say from these couple of chapters and I'm just going to whiz, give you some headlines because it's time for us to stop for some questions. The unexpected hatred of the one true living God is followed up by unexpected judgment. 
he says to his people, he calls them my enemies. Because they've turned their back on him, he says, you are now my enemies and he is going to come in judgment upon them. He likens them to a vineyard and he says, I'm going to pull down the walls and I'm going to let everyone just come in and take, take over my vineyard. It's unexpected judgment. However, in what is a fairly bleak picture across these five chapters, there are certain points where I guess I liken it to, you know what coal dust is like? Like really black, thick coal dust. I imagine these chapters like a room full of black coal dust. It's pretty bleak. But every now and then in this room of black coal dust, there is a an incredibly beautiful, massive diamond. And throughout these five chapters, there are several of these massive diamonds amidst all the coal dust. And these diamonds are moments of grace. Moments where God shows undeserved kindness to his people. His people who've turned their back on him. And so he says to them in Isaiah chapter 1, he says... Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The incredible grace that the one true living God offers here to his people who've turned their back on him is that if only they will turn back to him now, he will forgive them. And you know, do you struggle to forgive people? <laughs> I try to forgive people, and, but I know in my heart of hearts sometimes I'm a fairly reluctant forgiver and sometimes secretly I hold on to it. I hold on to the wrong that they've done, which is not good for me and certainly not good for them. That's not how the one true living God forgives. When he forgives, he wipes you completely clean. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Complete and utter transformation. Complete cleansing. That's what the one true living God does. That such is his love and his grace for his people, even when we wander from his way. That's the good news that comes to fulfilment in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm not sure what difficulties you have had in life, what struggles with sin, maybe what things that you've done that you're terribly ashamed of. But what is clear from these opening chapters of Isaiah is that the one true living God says, come to me and I can wipe it all clean. All of it. That's incredible. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve None of us deserve that. But that's who he is. It's unexpected grace from him. Why would he do that? Well, it's because he is unexpectedly determined. He is unexpectedly determined. The one true living God is absolutely determined that sin, even my sin, your sin, will not stop him ultimately blessing all of his creation and fulfilling all of his plans. 
He is determined, you can see in these chapters, to bring about blessing for all of his creation. And that is why he offers grace. I hope that actually over the course of this year, you do decide to get involved with the EU here on campus. You do decide to come to public meetings, get involved in a small group. Because you want to understand the character and person of this one true living God more deeply. We all want to. To understand his great grace. To understand his determination to bless us as his creatures. And I hope that actually by investing in doing that this year, that actually you'll be transformed and changed as you come to a knowledge of him who loved you and made you.